This program is brought to you by Stanford University. It is a special delight to welcome Caroline Walker Bynum, Professor of European Medieval History at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. The recipient of many awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship and 12 honorary degrees, she is a fellow not only in the American Philosophical Society and the Medieval Academy of America, uh, but also in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 1999, she was appointed the Jefferson Lecturer, the highest award the federal government gives in the humanities. Prior to going to Princeton, Caroline taught at Harvard, the University of Washington, and Columbia. Her work, now extending to 10 books and multiple articles, has taken us on a surprising journey sparked by her attention to what she herself has called the radical oddness of things. The originality of her vision became apparent with her second book, Jesus' Mother, Studies in the Spirituality of the High Middle Ages. The oddness of 12th century monks attributing maternal attributes and virtues to Jesus caught her eye. The, at the time, relatively new interest in gender among feminist scholars created space for seeing such strangeness, which earlier generations of historians had ignored. But the way Caroline Bynum approached her subjects displayed the particularly efficacious combination of intense curiosity and deep respect from which we have benefited ever since. It has enabled her to see things previously unseen, to bring them to the fore and to intrigue us as she invites us to share her journey of discovery, to understand why people did the surprising things they did. She keeps a wide horizon in view that takes into account the range of social, economic, political, and psychological factors at play around the focus of her attention. But always she avoids reductionist explanations that would obscure rather than illuminate the multivalent religious symbol she explores. Her fourth book, Holy Feast, Holy Fast, has become a classic. Medieval women used the idea of food to discipline and organize their religious devotion, not as a matter of traditional fasting, but as the symbolic expression of their religious desire. Women transformed their own hunger for God into an excess that enabled them spiritually to feed others, sometimes quite literally with the exudations of their own bodies. A central insight of Holy Feast, Holy Fast set the direction of much of her later work. Historians had understood medieval asceticism as an attempt to transcend and escape from our embodiment. Instead, Caroline came to see embodiment and corporality as central to medieval conceptions of self-identity, and asceticism precisely as evidence of that identification. Her next three books took up the debates and troubling paradoxes that bodily res resurrection posed for the medieval church. The radical oddness of the proliferating reliquaries containing the ever more fragmented bodies of saints put the question of the body at the center of much medieval devotion. And the very presence of such bodily fragments raised questions about the nature of the resurrected body. How would it be perfected and still retain its identity? What would be gathered at the end of time? What would happen to all of the pieces of body shed during a lifetime? What would happen to a body eaten by animals or cannibals? The nature of the concern is evident in the title of her fifth book, Fragmentation and Redemption, the reciprocals of the corrupt and impassable body held both the horror and the hope of death and of the afterlife. 
Then came the recognition that a challenge to her thesis lay in medieval fascination with shape-changing, with the monstrous, with werewolves and the like. If bodily integrity was so important to medieval conceptions of identity, where would such preoccupations with shape-shifting fit? Her ninth book, Metamorphosis and Identity, uh, addressed the challenge, exploring both wonders and monstrosities, arguing that rather than a challenge, they posed exceptions that proved her rule. Most recently, her attention to the radical oddness of things has turned to late medieval preoccupation with blood, particularly Christ's blood, as the vivifying excess that connected the faithful with God and with the hope of salvation. In her 10th and most recent book, Wonderful Blood, her use of medieval art, as is usual for her, visual as well as textual evidence, gives a, rich, a thick richness to her argument. Caroline's current project, about which we will hear something tonight, continues her interest in medieval attitudes toward materiality and corporality as they played out in the religious life of the time. Her title is, for tonight, Weeping Statues and Bleeding Bread, Miracles in the Later Middle Ages. Please welcome Caroline Walker Bynum. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here, and I thank Hester in particular for an introduction which perhaps put more order and shape in what I've been doing than even I could have. So thank you very much, and thank all of you for having me. Miracles were an important part of medieval Christianity. Although Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries debated whether the age of miracles had ended with Christ's ascension or with the triumph of Christianity under Constantine, most medieval preachers and theologians thought miracles continued into their own day. You may be familiar from European painting with the sort of miracles told regularly of medieval saints. They allegedly healed the sick, cast out demons, afflicted Christianity's enemies with paralysis or other bodily ills, and occasionally raised the dead. Although the virtues of self-discipline, prayerful contemplation, and loving service of neighbor were also important. Miracles were crucial signs, even proofs of sanctity. I do not want to talk today about miracles generally. Rather, I want to discuss a particular kind of miracle, the transformation miracle, <laughs> of which we're going to see an example in a moment because my voice will be... <laughs> okay, is that better? Let me know if it gets too loud or too soft. You can wave your hands. All right. Uh, I want to talk today about a particular kind of miracle, the transformation miracle. That is a miracle in which material or bodily stuff metamorphoses into something else, often remaining as such and becoming a place of pilgrimage or cult. Examples include statues that weep tears or change color, communion wafers and chalices that spill blood, body parts that regenerate, fragments of bone or hair that supposedly come alive, and bits of wax, stone, or paper that carry power across distances and bring about physical healing. I argue that such, such miracles became more common in the later Middle Ages, that is, in the 13th to 16th centuries, and were an aspect of a general and increasing emphasis in the culture on the material as a place for encounter with and manifestation of the sacred. Such miracles were an opportunity and a problem for medieval Christians. It is those possibilities and problems and the understanding of the divine and the material that lay behind them that I wish to talk about today. 
But first, a little more explanation of the types of holy matter I have in mind. There are four types of holy objects on which I'll be focusing here. And they're on the slide. Images, relics, contact relics, and what German historians call Dauerwunder, lasting miracles. The first type, living or animated images, are statues or frescoes thought to alter physically or to come alive in response to the needs of Christians for reward, succor, or revenge. They are especially phenomena of the late 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, although the objects themselves often predate the moment of their animation by several hundred years. In Prado, in 1484, for example, a child supposedly saw the Virgin Mary come down from a wall to clean an abandoned prison. This is the actual image that uh, came alive in 1484. Crowds who flocked to the spot saw the image change color, weep, sweat blood, open and close its eyes. Within a few weeks, the bishop authenticated the site and a church was soon built around it. There are a number of contemporaneous cases in northern Italy and in Germany. In some cases, cures were effected by such animated images at a distance through the simple act of an adherence prayer to the Virgin. But sometimes the power of the image was itself transferred by physical object. In the case of Mary of the prison in Prado, pilgrim tokens, either woodcuts or little lead replicas of the fresco, were touched to the mouths or bodies of the sick and produced cures. Down into the 17th century, engraved images of the Madonna of the Garden near Genoa were said to work miracles by touch. Moreover, images sometimes defended themselves against iconoclasts who attacked them or denied their power. In the 15th century at Neukirchen in Bavaria, for example, a Hussite iconoclast struck a statue of the Virgin in the head and it spewed forth blood in protest. The statue, with the sword still embedded, was venerated for centuries. Images sometimes engendered or reproduced their own details. Stigmata, the wounds of Christ supposedly appearing on the bodies of the devout, are first reported in the late 12th century. They are, of course, transformation miracles themselves. But what is even more interesting is the fact that they are usually depicted by artists as impressed on the bodies of saints, not by Christ, but by an object, the crucifix. Here we actually have two uh, typical depictions of the stigmatization of St. Francis. The first is a typical woodcut. You see this is 15th century. You see the crucifix is clearly impressing itself on Francis's body and the red lines that are drawn from the wounds to the wounds on Francis clearly show uh, the direction of impact. Uh, and here we have a slightly earlier um, depiction where it's interesting, you see the cross is not painted, but it's perfectly clear that the body, which is floating in the air, is a corpus from a crucifix, you can tell uh, from the way uh, it's set up in the painting. In what might seem to be a gloss on such depictions, the great 13th century theologian St. Bonaventure described the event. Bonaventure tells us that on a certain morning, about the time of the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, Francis saw a seraph bearing a crucifix. And when he came down from the mountain, Francis, quote, bore with him the image of the crucified, 
which was depicted not on tablets of stone or on panels of wood by the hands of a craftsman, but imprinted or impressed or stamped, figuratum, in the members of his body by the finger of the living God." Unquote. In Bonaventure's account, not only is it the crucifix that God stamps or imprints in Francis, but Francis himself becomes literally an image made by God the carver or sealer or scribe in living flesh. The 14th century provides us with a more amusing story of holy reproduction. According to the canonization process of Peter of Luxembourg for the year 1388 to 89, a priest applied an image of Peter to the stomach of Charlotte of Bourbon, who was suffering a difficult labor. Not only was the child born healthy, but it also bore the features of Peter of Luxembourg, as displayed on the image. <laughs> the other three types of holy matter, which are here again on the slide, became important in Christianity before the period in which animated images proliferated so extravagantly. Veneration of relics, the remains of holy people, first the martyrs, and later spiritual figures, such as miracle-working monks or female visionaries, originated in the fourth century. The practice flourished throughout the Middle Ages, but emphasis on the bodiliness of the remnants increased visually as well as theologically after the 12th century. In the early period, relics in, in the West were usually housed in jeweled caskets shaped like purses. In the 12th century, containers shaped like churches became popular. And here you have two very elegant and beautiful 12th century examples. These containers, these sort of casket uh, reliquaries, which are, are shaped like buildings or like churches, not only hid the fragmentation martyrs' bodies might have undergone, they also evoked the gathered community of Christians, sort of gathering uh, together the pieces. Over the course of the Middle Ages, actual division and distribution of holy bodies became more and more frequent. By the 13th century, relics came to be displayed in what German historians call speaking reliquaries, containers shaped like arms or feet, etc. The shapes supposedly indicated that they had body parts within. Crystal monstrances both manifested the bodily nature of what was inside, the devout could see the bone fragments or teeth, etc., and also commented on their actual or potential glorification and resurrection by surrounding them with incorruptible gold and gems. We have here several examples of late medieval reliquaries. You have uh, here on your left at the top a, a crystal monstrance from the 14th century. Then you have a reliquary triptych uh, down below with the collection you see of the little relics uh, made made clear to you. You have an arm reliquary, it's 13th century from, from Halberstadt, a beautiful object, and you can see, again, the bone is, is quite clearly sort of privileged and uh, visible there uh, behind the crystal. And then there's a slightly earlier, a 12th century head reliquary. Especially in the later Middle Ages, stories were told of relics that, like images, came alive and caused transformations. For example, the hairs of the early 13th century Saint Mary of Wanyi were said to writhe as if living, although preserved apart from her body, and to cure the sick. The holy woman Isabel of France was said to have provided a new fingernail from the dust of her tomb for someone who had lost one. 
In Naples, since the later 14th century, as I'm sure many of you know, the blood of St. Januarius, a supposed martyr of the early 4th century, has been claimed to liquefy in early May and on the saint's feast day in mid-September. On one occasion, it supposedly stopped an eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And this is a, an interesting case because what we have here is a supposed 4th century relic, which suddenly decides, quote unquote, in the 14th century uh, to start uh, liquefying, that is, uh, coming, come, coming alive. A third and closely related type of holy matter, contact relics, was also important throughout the Middle Ages. The faithful revered not just bodies and body parts, but pieces of cloth, dust, or wash water from the bodies and the tombs of saints as well. For example, a nightcap knitted by the same Isabella of France I just mentioned was revered as a relic. Contact relics of Christ and Mary, for example, pieces of Mary's mantle, were also revered as were effluvial, that is, exuded relics, such as Christ's blood and Mary's milk. Indeed, associated relics were particularly important in the case of Jesus and Mary because their actual bodies were assumed to be unavailable, having been taken into heaven. In the early Middle Ages, the so-called true cross, that is, the cross of the crucifixion, imbued with Christ's blood, was especially venerated. Later, the sweat cloth and other of the instruments of the crucifixion eclipsed the relics of saints. This is an example of a crystal uh, reliquary of a thorn, a nail uh, from uh, the crucifixion. Like bodily relics, crucifixion relics sometimes underwent periodic transformation. In the Greek church, for example, stories were told of thorn relics flowering at Passion Tide. In the 14th century, the Italian holy woman, Alda of Siena, carved for herself a wooden nail to imitate a crucifixion relic. And even this imitation relic was said to ooze sap as if it were alive. Effluvial and quasi-bodily relics, such as the holy foreskin from Christ's circumcision or the blood of Christ and Mary's milk, also reached new prominence in the later Middle Ages and worked miracles. Like the blood of St. Januarius, Relics of Christ's blood were reputed to liquefy. In the 14th century, for example, Pope Clement V granted an indulgence, that is a certificate of a certain number of days off in purgatory, to those who viewed the liquefaction of the blood relic at Bruges, which allegedly occurred every Friday. The fourth type of holy matter, the Eucharist, was treated throughout the Middle Ages as if it were a bodily relic of Christ. Although theologians and ecclesiastical authorities were sometimes dubious about the practice, consecrated wafers were buried in altars along with and in place of relics. They were used in healings and to authenticate oaths. From the 12th century on, visionaries came increasingly to see the figure of Christ, sometimes as a baby or a suffering man, sometimes as mutilated flesh in the bread and wine. This is the wing of a retable which depicts such a vision, probably from a cloister of Clares at Nuremberg, uh, painted around 1350. And you see there um, the, the nun seeing the baby in, uh, in the wafer. So we have a depiction of a seeing. Then in the later 13th century, a new kind of Eucharistic holy matter became prominent which German historians call Dauerwunder. We find stories of the consecrated bread and wine not only becoming visible flesh and blood 
to reward devotion or reproach doubters, but also remaining as miraculous stuff. So you have a transformation of a wafer or a chalice fills with blood, and then these objects themselves uh, are put in some kind of reliquary or put in a tabernacle and people make a pilgrimage to them. These long-lasting miracles provided for the faithful new sources of miracle-working matter and hence new foci for devotion. Thus, they played an important role in changing the religious landscape, enabling new towns and hamlets to compete with established sites by offering their own goals of pilgrimage. And this is an illumination from a manuscript which depicts one of these miracle hosts, the hosts of Dijon, as preserved in a monstrance. The host was given by Pope Eugene IV, who was a great promoter of these kinds of relics, uh, to fill up the good of Burgundy in 1433. So we have a miracle which allegedly occurred before 1433. This is a, an illumination depicting it in its container with the blood stop spots uh, still prominent, uh, which was done sometime after 1500. Sometimes thought to be manifestations of God's power and love, such Eucharistic miracles were more and more frequently seen as divine responses to abuse of various kinds. Theft by criminals, conjuring by ignorant women, ritual impurity on the part of priests. As they became more sinister, they also became bloodier. Wafers were thought to turn into bleeding meat, chalices to fill with blood and run over staining altar cloths. Especially in certain areas of Europe, such as Bavaria and northern Germany, Dauerwunder were increasingly anti-Jewish libels. Hosts were thought to erupt in blood because they had been stabbed and fragmented by Jews wishing to test or conjure with them. Such hosts were understood as material objects by which Jews spread anti-Christian activity from town to town. They were even used in Christian judicial proceedings, both ecclesiastical and secular, as physical evidence of Jewish misdeeds. At the alleged trial of desecrators, uh, at the trial of alleged desecrators at Sternberg in northern Germany in 1492, bits of the violated bread, the nails used to perpetrate abuse, and wood from a table into which the blood supposedly soaked were actually introduced as physical evidence into a trial against the accused. Thus, in the same period in which statues and wall paintings were thought to come alive in order to bestow benefits or protest abuse, other physical objects, such as relics and consecrated wafers, began in new and more literal ways to announce the holy within them. All this made learned theologians quite uneasy. To put it simply, theologians were caught. On the one hand, there was danger of idolatry. After all, the second commandment said, thou shalt not make to thyself a graven thing, Exodus 20, 4-5. On the other hand, there were the doctrines of creation, incarnation, and bodily resurrection. These doctrines asserted the possibility of divine presence in matter. Hence, theologians tended to talk out of both sides of their mouths about the increasing materiality of Christian devotion. Some struggled to avoid the suggestion that images could in any sense depict the sacred. Images were, they argued, mere signs pointing to an exemplar. They were only triggers that directed the attention of the faithful to an ultimately unseeable divine. Some spiritual advisors counseled against over-reliance on images, and dissident groups, such as Lollards and Hussites, went so far as to reject or even smash statues they're very violent, suggesting how seductive the highly tactile art of the late Middle Ages could be. 
Yet university theologians attacked Lollard and Hussite iconoclasm even more vehemently than they castigated the credulity of popular image devotion. And confessors increasingly taught their advisees to meditate before both actual re religious objects and visualizations in the mind's eye. So clear, clearly ambivalence, pro uh, and con, these images in all their tactility uh, and living qualities. Nor were theologians ambivalent only about images. They jumped through intellectual hoops to mitigate other implications of the idea that the holy was instantiated in matter. The great 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas, for example, explained that a relic is not the living body of the saint, quote unquote, on account of its difference of form. That is, the relic is no longer informed by the saint's soul, which is in heaven. Like an image, a relic should be venerated for that towards which it points. In this case, not the saint at all, but God who works wonders through it. Yet, a relic is the saint, said Aquinas quote unquote, by identity of matter, which is destined to be reunited with its form. In honoring bits of saints, we revere physical stuff that will be reassembled, resurrected, animated, and glorified at the end of time. In other words, the relic both is and is not the saint. Aquinas and some who followed him held that there could not be bodily or quasi-bodily relics of Christ, such as the holy foreskin or vials of his blood. Christ's whole body had ascended into heaven, hence no part could be left behind without threatening his perfection. But a number of other theologians defended such relics. They maintained that Christ could have left bits of his blood or flesh behind as traces to stir up enthusiasm at times of crisis or lukewarm religiosity. Moreover, the later Middle Ages saw popular enthusiasm for the sort of effluvial relics these theologians defended. A number of visionaries and devotional writers revered with special intensity such somatic presences. The nun Bridget of Sweden and the Begwin Agnes Blambekin were devoted to the relic of the holy foreskin. Pope Innocent III explicitly refused to doubt the foreskin relic, and later popes supported it with indulgences. Dauerwunder presented even more of a conundrum. Some scholastic writers went so far as to argue that the body and blood of Christ could never be seen. Transubstantiation as an explanation of Eucharistic change had been required at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And transubstantiation meant, by definition, that only the substance of the elements, that is of the bread and wine, what they were by definition, changed. The accidents, their appearance, remained the same. So you couldn't see what changed because it wasn't uh, what uh, appeared. Hence, if an individual or even a group saw a host or a communion cup change to blood or flesh, they were not, according to this theory, seeing what was really there. For essence or substance is not seeable. What is seeable is accidents. Appearances in the Eucharist for the transient or long-lasting must be, if not illusions or frauds, either the result of special miracles worked by God in the imaginations of viewers, or new red things created in blood, in bread and cup to enhance the faith, according to a theory of a certain number of theologians. Moreover, from the Carolingian period to the end of the Middle Ages, there were spiritual writers for whom presence was experienced and authenticated exactly by its spiritual inwardness, not its physical graspability. The author of the early 14th century devotional dialogue, Srestha Katrai, for example, 
remarked, I think this is quite lovely, if we were really to see God in the Eucharist, it would quote unquote, break our eyes. A number of theologians and devotional writers hypothesized that God had chosen to hide Eucharistic presence in bread and wine exactly because of a natural human horror at blood. Roger Bacon claimed that the sacrament, quote, is veiled because the human heart could not endure to masticate and devour raw and living flesh and to drink fresh blood, unquote. <laughs> Nor was skepticism about the literal presence of the divine and matter limited to intellectuals and contemplatives. There were ordinary Christians, too, who doubted the more extravagant claims for Dauerwunder, and not only because they suspected fraud. We find pilgrimage accounts from the later Middle Ages in which travelers expressed doubts about the claims of shrine attendants, both to the possession of miraculous objects and to the healings they supposedly brought about. Yet all Orthodox theologians agreed that the holy could appear in matter. After consecration, the Eucharistic elements were not only signs or mementos, they were Christ, Christ human and Christ divine. Visionary nuns might be accused of hysteria or of faking specific revelations. Individual local pastors might be convicted of fabricating Dauerwunder in order to promote pilgrimage and garner revenues. But it was hard to reject all arguments for the authenticity of Eucharistic visions and miracles. The real presence of Christ in consecrated wafer and cup could not, at least not without coming under suspicion of heresy, be denied. Hence, if Christ were really present, an omnipotent God could surely signal or manifest this in a variety of ways, sometimes quite shocking and literal. Now, as I hope this exposition has suggested, the holy matter that proliferated in presence and in visibility in Europe in the later Middle Ages was both an opportunity and a problem. For lay people, cloistered monks and nuns, and many local clergy, it was an occasion for focusing personal piety, fomenting new pilgrimages, and refuting dissident critiques of established cults. But it was also a threat to ecclesiastical authorities who found it difficult to manage images, relics, and bloody Eucharistic wafers that might crop up or erupt into new forms without any official prompting. In what prelates, Preachers and polemicists wrote, it is clear that they often saw such devotions as a threat to the church's control, however much they also attempted to use them to foster allegiance to specific monasteries, dioceses, or pilgrimage sites. We cannot, of course, take miracle stories literally. This is not simply because we must bracket questions about their ultimate cause, but also because the stories were often composed long after the supposed event and for polemical purposes. Indeed, a surprising number of miracle accounts of the sort I've been talking about here were made in the 16th century by Protestant scholars who exaggerated the miraculous in order to accuse Catholics of credulity. Nonetheless, the stories fall into broad patterns that are suggestive of social facts. Animated images were usually said to appear to people of lowly or marginal status, especially children, and frequently in out-of-the-way places. Eucharistic visions, received more often by women than men, often functioned to point an accusing finger at corrupt priests, and were frequently received when clergy withheld the sacrament or other sorts of spiritual comfort from the women. Dower wonder were usually alleged to be the result of servants, especially female servants, criminals, or Jews misusing the wafer. 
Such stories suggest that transformation miracles were often occasions on which ordinary Christians claimed to come into unmediated and awe-inspiring contact with the holy. The stories also reflect occasions on which Christians did abuse, steal, or attempt to work magic with relics or wafers. At Zednik in northern Germany, for example, a miracle supposedly occurred when a woman stole a host to bury under her beer keg so her beer would be better than that of her neighbors. We know about it because there was a miracle, but we also know that women were using uh, the host in their fish ponds and their uh, breweries and, and this kind of thing. Um, as I said, blood uh, bubbled up from the earth where she buried it and was collected by the faithful as a relic. When a similar miracle occurred at Halberstadt, the ecclesiastical authorities tried to take the bloody chalice and cough away, but the blood flowed again to protest being moved. Such stories demonstrate both popular encounters with holy matter and resistance on the part of some ordinary Christians to clerical efforts to manipulate it in order to stimulate or repress devotion. But narratives of transformation miracles are not transparent accounts. They were often constructed to stereotype certain groups as impious, superstitious, or vicious. The way in which shrine attendants recorded miracles or hagiographers and chroniclers wrote about saints suggests that clerical authorities feared anti-clerical reactions and projected these fears onto outsiders, scapegoating lower-class women, working men, religious dissidents, and above all, Jews. Behind some accounts of the Eucharistic miracles lie pogroms and Christian efforts to find excuses for them. The earlier of these stories tend to come after, often 30, 40, 50 years after, a, basically a lynching uh, of Jews. A number of reports of Dauerwunder from the late 13th to the 15th centuries are stories fabricated significantly after these events in order to justify the events. But by the later 15th and 16th centuries, such stories are often circulated ahead of time as preparation for judicial proceedings uh, against Jewish groups. The politics of transformation miracles were quite complicated. Whether or not they were anti-Jewish libels, the supposed animations of holy objects provided occasions for blame and persecution, as well as for access to succor and healing. Not only did holy stuff proliferate, its very lability became a mechanism of accusation. I give a single example of the complex ways in which animated matter was problematic, both in its perceived capacity to reproach and blame and in its susceptibility to manipulation for ends pious and impious. This is the famous case of the Vilsnack host. And you should see here, yes. Uh, the church at Vilsnack, as it is today, and the chest, the medieval chest, in which the miracle was kept. The originating event at Vilsnack occurred in 1383, when three miraculously preserved and blood-spotted wafers appeared in the ruins of a village church after it had been burned to the ground by a predatory knight. Offered as a promise of rebirth to the community by its priest, and perhaps indeed connected with the local harvest festival, the objects triggered an enthusiastic pilgrimage that lasted more than 100 years and drew a wide variety of people from all over Europe. It was the most popular pilgrimage in northern Europe in the 15th century. Soon after 1383, however, the hosts were suspected by the authorities in Magdeburg of being a fraud. 
Conflict over their authenticity became the occasion both for sophisticated theological debate at several major synods and councils and for struggle over pilgrimage revenues, local peacekeeping, and other matters of secular and ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Archiepiscopal authorities in Magdeburg opposed the prestige and power given the little church of Bilsnack by its pilgrimage, but the Bishop of Havelburg and the electors of Brandenburg, that is, local authorities, both religious and secular, adamantly supported the pilgrimage. Arguments against the pilgrimage emanating from both the archdiocese and the University of Prague to the south erupted repeatedly in the 15th century and were clearly, among other things, a contest between German and Czech nationalisms. Papal legations led by such powerful figures as the saints Nicholas of Cusa and John of Capistrano became involved. Criticism of the cult came not only from the highest levels of the church, but also from a number of ordinary pilgrims who in accounts of their journeys tell of faked miracles and question improbable metamorphoses, such as the alleged transformation of pilgrim staves into swords when the pilgrims were attacked by robbers and then the swords were hung all around uh, in the church. What I wish to call attention to here is not only the political maneuvering of many parties involved, but also the arguments that were mounted for and against the hosts for over a hundred years after their supposed appearance. The most virulent phase of the controversy occurred in the 1440s. In addition to asserting that the former priest, now deceased, had orchestrated the miracle, a charge that invited, of course, the counter charge that opponents had lied about the priest's confession, Polemicists against the host claimed that there was nothing read there. Nothing read there either in 1443 when they were inspected or originally. The problem was not so much moral turpitude and manipulation by the priests, they said. It was that there was no miraculous matter at Vilsnack, only mold and spiderwebs. In other words, there had never been any transformation. From Jan Haas to Nicholas of Cusa, Many theologians asserted specifically that what was in the monstrance was at most only a colored thing, not Christ's blood. Moreover, they saw matter's tendency toward deterioration as a threat not only to miracle hosts, but even to ordinary consecrated ones. In a decree of 1451, the papal legate Nicholas of Cusa warned, quote, transformed host should be consumed by the celebrating priest in communion rather than that the sacred Eucharist, given to us as a divine gift for spiritual perfection, should be permitted to disintegrate through the corruption of the species." Unquote. So any kind of corruption is a threat to a holy object. But note that even Nicholas of Cusa here does call the wafers in question transformed host. And Vilsnack had its supporters, theorists as well as politicians. There were those who argued that Christ could have left blood behind at the resurrection, hence it could appear on consecrated hosts. Indeed, in a sort of desubstantiation, oh, this is a nice argument, in a desubstantiation, the blood on host could be present as accidents without substance, they argued, so just the reverse of transubstantiation. In other words, the substance of Christ's blood could ascend to glory, leaving the accidents behind, and that was what the faithful saw in the host. To proponents of the miracle, such holy matter was useful exactly because it accused as well as revealed. One of the earliest stories connected to Vilsnack told of the miracle host bleeding again to ward off the injury of double consecration 
when the bishop arrived to say mass with them. The bishop was sent, of course, because it was a fear that they weren't consecrated hosts or that they weren't miracles. So the bishop was going to come and say mass with them, which would consecrate them, which would make it all right for people to revere them. But the hosts themselves protested against this. We don't need uh, to be consecrated. We have already expressed ourselves, uh, so to speak. A 16th century theologian theorized that miraculous blood cries out against sin and abuse because it was shed innocent. Or as another polemicist put it, blood miracles are horrible, with a horrible message, because they are a sign of God's wrath at sin. Thus, as the case of Vilsnack makes clear, material miracles were both problem and opportunity for religious authorities who wished to educate and control just as they were both problem and opportunity for lay folk who wanted access to God. Sometimes efforts to assert the cultural hegemony of Orthodox Christianity, such events also sometimes involved and were often feared to involve resistance to ecclesiastical authority or to orthodoxy. Moreover, for both groups, ecclesiastical authorities and lay folk, miraculous objects function to focus persecution, lynching, and judicial murder. Thus, holy matter was a tool in the deployment and the questioning of ecclesiastical and social power. But transformation miracles involved not only questions of power and control, they also involved questions of the meaning of human embodiment and its place in a material world. Now I'm moving to my final point. Behind claims to and belief in such miracles lay certain basic assumptions about the divine and the material. The first such assumption was the doctrine of creation itself, the belief that God made the world ex nihilo, from nothing. And here we have uh, panels from the famous uh, gravel altar in Hamburg, which show uh, two of the days of God creating the world. Um, the creation of the world is, of course, a much more important theme in late medieval art, theology, and devotional writing than is often realized. If God could create, then surely he could recreate. All things were possible to God. Thus, no medieval thinker completely denied miracles. Although Christian theologians did formulate an understanding of miracle as that which occurred above, beyond, or counter to the regularities of nature God also established, they continued the New Testament tradition of understanding miracles as signs of God or holy works. Most followed Augustine of Hippo in seeing everything in creation as a miracle because everything is ultimately dependent on divine providence. Moreover, the doctrine of bodily resurrection at the end of time underlined God's love for the matter he created. Incarnated in matter, Christ rose from the dead, taking matter to heaven. While still on earth, he healed the bodies of others and resurrected them from the dead. It is therefore hardly surprising that the 13th century theologian Bonaventure held all creation to be God's footprints. Francis of Assisi saw the creator in stars, birds, and even wolves. The holy women, Mechthild of Hagaborn and Marjorie Kemp, contemplated God in a workaday donkey or a blade of grass. Even those natural philosophers whose formulations point toward the rise of modern mechanics and astronomy never categorically denied the possibility of miracle. Nicola Ram, for example, who thought most visions resulted from indigestion, <laughs> assented to the biblical story of the sun standing still for Joshua. All through the 15th century, polemicists for and against effluvial relics and Dauerwunder made reference to the resurrection of the body at the end of time. Those such as Jan Hus, 
who opposed Christ's effluvial relics, argued that he must have risen whole, since we are promised integral and complete resurrection. Those such as Johannes Bremer, who supported such relics, argued that they were left behind exactly to give us a visual evidence of God's power for our future redemption. Belief in divine omnipotence and in God's love for matter manifested in his incarnation was not the only assumption undergirding transformation miracles. Assumptions about matter itself were also at stake. And these were complicated. Following Isidore of Seville, the 7th century encyclopedist, whose etymological definitions were the starting point for much later speculation, medieval theologians held that materia, the word for matter comes from mater, the word for mother. And you have to understand medieval etymological thinking. The components of a word are the thing. They tell us about the essence of the thing. So if materia comes from mater, this means that matter is maternal. Uh, medieval etymological thinking was not historical. They were not trying to find the historic roots of words, trying to find the essence of things uh, through uh, the word. So matter is the place of change and the source of life. As Isidore also said, corpus, that is body, is called from corruptum. So within body itself is the process of change. Body is by definition that which changes. And to Isidore, body meant something closer to thing than to living human being. Cadavers, grass, wood, and stone are all bodies. Moreover, the model of material change inherited by medieval thinkers from Aristotle was the process of organic generation and corruption. Although theorists did sometimes distinguish living from non-living and artificial from natural, that is, they had the concepts that enabled them to make these distinctions and they used them um, in, in their writing, they usually spoke as if all change was what we would call organic birth and decay. I take one example, that of alchemy, where the assumption is especially clear. When alchemical texts were first received in Latin Europe from Arabic sources in the 12th century, theorists doubted whether the transformation of base metal into gold was possible. By the later 13th century, they were beginning to accept the possibility and to theorize it. For example, when the theologian Giles of Rome was asked in a quadlibital debate to consider the question whether human beings can make gold, the arguments he gave for the proposition included both the fact that human beings can make glass and the fact that Pharaoh's magicians made servants from staves, according to Exodus 7. Giles then went on to classify different forms of generation. Horses from equine menstruum, bees from the decaying carcasses of cattle, wine from grapes, and gold from other metals deep in the earth. The difference was, he says, the place and form of generation. Now, what interests me in this are not so much the arguments for and against alchemy, but rather the fact that what we would call normal physiological production, that is, fetus from uterine material, what we would call spontaneous generation, that is, bees from decaying flesh, and what we would call mechanical production, that is, glass from sand, or if possible, gold from lead, are treated as parallel cases as far as the production of body is concerned, and that production is conceptualized as generation. In other words, all matter is treated, at least to some extent, as organic and alive. 
Now, there's a great deal more I could say about the sense we find in Aristotle, Isidore, and Giles of Rome, that matter is fertile, labile, percolating, forever tossing up horses, bees, glass, or gold. And I obviously don't have time to do that uh, in a short lecture. What is worth pointing out, however, is that such an understanding of matter gave those medieval thinkers who wished to do so resources for controlling the miraculous, but it also contributed to a sense of matter as that which might constantly erupt in transformation. Building on the idea that matter was by definition changeable, some theologians developed the theory that God had planted patterns of change called seminal reasons in things at the moment of creation. The idea that bodies bore seeds of other bodies they might generate or become was used by a number of intellectuals to explain transformation miracles or elucidate doctrines such as transubstantiation. It was an idea that closely controlled the nature and direction of change without naturalizing the miraculous completely. In the 12th century, for example, several theologians gave the following explanation of the account of the wedding at Cana in John's Gospel, where Christ allegedly turned water into wine. There are seminal reasons in things that unfold in preordained time. Trees draw up water into grapes and make wine. If God speeds this up and turns water into wine without the intervening steps, we call it a miracle. In the 14th century, a natural philosopher, Nicholas of Otrecourt, used another theory of matter, atomism, which was quite rare in the Middle Ages, to explain bodily resurrection, claiming that it was merely a miraculous version of the process whereby water could be vaporized into gas and then return as water. Such arguments used philosophical explanations of change to make transformation miracles extreme cases of natural events, cases whose mechanisms we can understand, although they can be carried out only by God. Only God could speed it up to that extent. Only God can sort of vaporize and then reconstitute our bodies. But it's a process we can understand, because it's one which we see and can theorize, can understand in the natural world. But the same sense of matter is, by definition, that which generates and decays according to certain regular and known processes, contributed to a sense of all bodies as a flow of generation and corruption. And understanding matter under the template of generation encouraged the expectation that blood, motion, or life might erupt from deep within. People in the later Middle Ages, ecclesiastical authorities, intellectuals, and the ordinary faithful, lived in a world where religious objects were not the only matter that was thought to undergo and to cause stunning change. Theologians and scientists were fascinated by the study of magnets, which drew iron particles across space, and alchemy, which, as we have seen, claimed to produce gold by speeding up growth that occurred deep in the earth. Everyone accepted spontaneous generation, the process by which decaying logs or bull's carcasses gave birth to worms or mice. The stuff of the world was alive and dynamic, constantly coming to be and passing away. It is hardly surprising, then, that blood was thought to erupt on wafers and statues, that images moved their eyes and descended from walls, that the bodies of holy people broke out in the wounds of Christ. To conclude, miracles of transformation presented practical and spiritual problems and opportunities to the theologians, the ecclesiastical authorities, and the ordinary faithful who supported or opposed them. They raised fundamental questions about who controlled the sacred, as well as about the nature of the divine and the nature of matter. 
They were certainly not, as is sometimes said, all frauds. And they were often accepted only after serious debate or not accepted at all. But their deployment and their questioning was not only a matter of power politics among ecclesiastics or between laity and clergy. The boy at Prado who saw Our Lady step down from her wall, like the Hussite at Neukirchen who attacked her. The alewife at Zaydnik who wanted to enhance her beer with the Eucharist, like the theologian and mystic Nicholas of Cusa who sought to keep Eucharistic presence unseen. These people all shared a sense that the divine can and does appear in the material and that such manifestations can be saving. Transformation miracles were occasions for the faithful to bypass clerical control as they were for authorities to manipulate popular devotion. They provided opportunities for ordinary people as well as elites to persecute outsiders and Jews. But they were also occasions for the serious scientific discussion of natural processes and deep theological consideration of the nature of the holy. And they were places where, in a religion often stereotyped as world or body denying, traces of divine glory were found in lowly matter and in ordinary human experience. Thank you. I'm glad to take questions. Yes. Um, thank you for a magnificent talk. Um, the, you ended by describing how miracles were understood within the natural laws of natural philosophy. But I want to backtrack to an earlier part of your talk where several times you gave examples of miracles as understood as evidence within juridical mm, context, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is very interesting. And so I wondered if you could um, talk a little bit more about the relationship between miraculous evidence and juridical evidence. And the question that I have is, are miracles a model for juridical evidence? Or the reverse, is juridical evidence a model for understanding miracles? Yeah, I don't know whether I can answer the general question, because I haven't looked at you know, the role of, of miracles in in, in, in trials. Um, and so I don't know. I think there, there are people who've worked on that who could answer the question for you. Um, the point I was actually making was the more limited one. I was trying to underline the stuffness of these things and therefore pointing out that we do have cases. And I think this is, this is interesting, sort of on the cusp of what we'd call the early modern period, um, in which, and I actually have seen descriptions of several of these trials up there in the north of Germany in the area around Berlin where the actual materials were brought in as proofs that the Jews had mutilated the wafer and so the point I was trying to emphasize was that whereas earlier these are just stories in a sense cooked up afterwards to justify events which had taken place before by the time you get to the 1480s 1490s you actually have people bringing um, legal cases against Jews for desecration, and they bring in the host or the piece of the host and the tabletop and the knives, and they say, look, I mean, how can you doubt that these people did it? Here's the physical stuff. And this was part of the case, which then resulted in, in, in the execution of 20 to 30 people in in several cases, um, or in, in also in one case where it was a Christian thief who supposedly had stolen the monstrance and then given the, 
the host out of it to, um, to the Jews, the, the stolen object was used in the case, the separate case against the priest who was also convicted and burned. So um, I, I certainly know that material objects become, become proof, literally proof texts, proof objects by the time you're on the cusp of the early modern period. But the general role of the miraculous in the legal, it's a wonderful topic, but somebody else will have to work on that one. Yes. What is the role of uh, the late uh, 13th century? Because you speak about this uh, intensification of the transfer, uh, interest in the transformation of matter and the miraculous, seeking the miraculous in the transformed matter at the later Middle Ages. So what is the role of the Crusader period, reconnection with the Loca Sancta, and the loss of the Loca Sancta? And together with this question, I would like to raise, uh, raise the question also of the connection with the writings of John of Damascus who, are, who is a writer who specifies, who speaks about materiality, that all matter through the incarnation becomes really sanctified matter, and who writes in Jerusalem, and whose writings, it seems, that in the 13th and the later centuries are reconnected with Western thought. So the question is really connection with the East as a model to this mentality. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot more that, that you know, could be said, obviously, about connection to the East all the way through. But on the first question, Clearly, the, uh, the coming in of large numbers of relics at the time of the first and second and, and above all, uh, the Fourth Crusade was important in stimulating some of this. And then there's no question at all that the loss of the Holy Land um, stimulates it in a different way because it's as a result of the loss of the Holy Land that you begin to get all those stories of the miraculous appearance of matter from the Holy Land in the West. You know, the, the manger from Bethlehem suddenly shows up in several places in Italy and the Holy House uh, flies from Nazareth to Laredo and you have um, you also begin to have, in complicated ways, um, uh, holy places constructed around the earth for, from Jerusalem, which actually even earlier uh, becomes central to these, these holy sepulchres that are particularly built in the, you know, in the north of Europe and sometimes have earth from the, from the holy sepulchre in Jerusalem as the locus of Gernroda or one of these places where you actually have a little imitation of the, of the holy sepulchre built. So I think there's no question that there is a, a transfer of objects. And some of these objects do increasingly get these stories about their, about their animation told. And I think this may have something to do with the fact that um, you have to explain in some way you know, how they get there. And in many cases, you don't have a good provenance. I mean, you simply don't. Um, and the Chronicles, it's one of the, the reasons why I found some of this very frustrating to work on when I tried to work on it in a local sense, because the, the evidence, as you know, it just, it just dissolves in your hands. I mean, it just runs through your fingers. I mean, you've got stories in Chronicles, and you try to go back. Did Henry the Lion really go to the Holy Land and get this relic? And then, of course, the whole story dissolves. And all you're left with is an object there. Um, but the provenance tends to disappear when you, try to, when you try to look into it. So you know that people are claiming that they get them from the Holy Land. But often this, in fact, can't be documented. They probably don't come from the Holy Land. And I think this is one of the incentives then for the object to simply appear 
which is a kind of an animation, a kind of a transformation, uh, because you can't, you can't prove that you were there and got them, and then increasingly you can't get there and get them, and they crop up. Um, so this does contribute to a sense of, of transformation and animation. Um, as far as John of Damascus is concerned, I simply know what you said, which is that he does become you know, much more important in the later Middle Ages when one has increasingly contact with, um, with Eastern theology. But, but, and, and he is... And he's often quoted by, he's quoted by Aquinas when he deals with relics and images. He's quoted by some of the, of the other people when they deal with relics and images. Um, I don't think that they really understood the whole sort of Greek approach to images. I don't think they really understood the complexity of Byzantine theology on images. I mean, the very complicated resonance, really, of the symbol and the relationship between image and exemplar. I don't think they really understood that. I, I think that they're, they are literalizing in certain ways and simplifying the theology. They simply have a different sense of these objects. And, and therefore, I, I mean, I don't know a great deal about how they use John of Damascus, but the few places I can think of where they're quoting him, it's, it's not really with a sophisticated awareness of the theology. It's a little tag brought in to support something which they want to say anyway. Uh, in, in their much more push-me-pull-me kind of approach to these holy objects. They're, they both are and they aren't is much more what they're trying to say. I think there's a much more complicated sense of how they are in, in, in Greek theology. So I don't, think that they're, I don't think they're able to do justice to it even when it comes in. Maybe by the time you get to the Renaissance, I mean, to some of the later Neoplatonism when it factors in, but not, I think, with the 13th century people, or late 13th, early 14th century people. I don't think so, though. There may be people here who know more about that than I do. Yes? My interest may be a little bit beyond the Oops. scope of your subject, but I think I'll try it anyway. Okay. If you can, if you can assume that uh, consciousness has got something to do with the way in which we make meaning out of experience. And if you can say that there was perhaps a large shift in consciousness uh, suggested by the Protestant Reformation, would you care to comment on the extent to which that shift precluded the, precluded the subject or influenced the subject of the transformational character of miracles? Well, I think that actually the burden of what I'm arguing is, uh, is the following. I mean, I very much had something like that question in mind. Um, the burden of what I'm, I'm, I'm arguing is, is twofold. On the one hand, anything that we can argue happens in the first 50, 60, 70 years of the 16th century is in many ways in continuity with what went before. But it's in continuity with what went before in a complicated sense. What, what I want to argue is that um, in the course of the 14th and particularly the 15th century, the, the ambiguity, the ambivalence of what I'm talking about gets stronger and stronger. In other words, the emphasis on the materiality of objects, the power of material objects, their power to transform, and in, in, in a way, aspects of their externality 
become stronger. At the same time, there is an increasing reaction against this. As you can see in the theologians that I'm talking about, many of them are talking out of both sides of their mouths. I mean, there, there's an increased stress on inwardness, there's an increased stress on will, there's an increased stress uh, on uh, denying the significance of the external, on going inward, and at the same time, the external is getting more and more important in these objects. And I think that it's not that, um, it's not so much that they're contradictory, is that there's something about the religion that necessitates, uh, I mean, what I call paradox, the simultaneous assertion of opposites. That one has to assert the importance of the material, the manifestation of the divine in, in that which is. And at the same time, one has to assert the notness of that because, you know, I mean, if, if you look at somebody like Nicholas of Cusa, whom I've mentioned, I mean, Nicholas of Cusa is, a, is an absolute sort of prime example of this paradox. On the one hand, I mean, there's nobody who stressed negative theology more, the impossibility of saying anything about God, right? I mean, this is what we identify with Nicholas of Cusa. At the same time, Nicholas of Cusa said that all of creation is led back to God through Christ, all of creation. Okay, so just even in Nicholas's theology, and then when you get into Nicholas' actual action as a papal legate, he goes up to the north of Germany and he condemns miracle hosts, and then he comes down to the south of Germany where there's a duke who's protecting a miracle host, a duke whose um, support the pope very much needs in his campaign for reform, and Nicholas accepts the miracle host of the, which the Duke is protecting after having c condemned them in the North. So, I mean, in, in his life, as well as in his theology, they're, they're the two sides of this. The, the divine can and cannot be nameable. It can and cannot be present in matter. And I think the, the, I think the weight of this paradox is that both sides are getting more intense in the 15th century. Um, and that each side is reacting against the other. I mean, increasingly, the theologians and the spiritual directors are trying to, um, to get people to be more pious by going on pilgrimage, by revering these things. And at the same time, there's, uh, there's a tendency to say, go within, stay home, spiritual pilgrimage, what happens inside is the important thing. And I think it's really the, 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 the weight of that that's what if you will, collapses or erupts, or I don't know, whatever kind of image you want in the 16th century, um, in the Protestant Reformation, I mean, in all its forms. But I also think it's extremely important that if you look at Catholic or Counter-Reformation uh, piety in the South, if you look at what's happening in Catholicism, it just as radically rejects a lot of this. I mean, the Council of Trent rejects Many of these images that are so important in the 15th century, one of the last acts of the Council of Trent is to condemn, quote unquote, all unusual images in churches. You know, let's get back to absolutely the standard stuff. None of this proliferating medieval stuff. They turn against relics. They turn against a lot of this kind of 15th century cult. So it isn't just a Protestant reaction. I think it's a reaction generally against the, 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 the tremendous both power and burden of this stuff in the 15th century. So I'm actually, without trying to become a Reformation historian, nonetheless sort of going in the direction of suggesting that some of this does help us understand what happens in the 16th century. So your question's not, not out of line at all, although I, I can't follow through with it too far into the 16th century.
Should we take one final question? Hi, excellent talk. Thank you so Thank much. You. For Thank visiting. you. Thank you. Um, all of this kind of reminds me, and I, I my uh, knowledge of biblical history is terrible, but I, I think I remember an account in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, where one of the prophets, his bones had healing powers or something like this. Yeah, Ezekiel, I think. No, okay. no, not as well. There's Ezekiel who, who has the dry bones rising, but mm. there's, who, who is it whose bones are, bring it's other dead? It's Elias or Elijah? Yeah, that's what I'm Yeah, saying. I think it's, Eli it's Elijah. Oh, okay, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, whose bones bring, bring somebody to life. Okay. Yeah, okay. So yeah. it made me curious, do, do the Jews at this time also have a similar sort of experience with miracles, or have they in, historically, um, uh, similar to uh, what you just presented? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Of course, I'm no, I'm no specialist in, in, in Jewish history, but there are actually a couple of people. Um, at, the, at the institute where I am who are working on this stuff this year, and so I've learned something about it. Um, obviously, <laughs> Jews aren't supposed to have these kinds of practices, right? Um, but Jews and Christians do share a number of things that would conduce to this sort of belief and this sort of activity, and we do know that in we certainly know that in Eastern Judaism, there was a good deal of, um, at least, of going to shrines and bringing back various sorts of talismans and amulets and this kind of thing, which is rather like what Christians do. But also there are cases in, in Ashkenaz, in the, in the north of Europe, where it's very interesting, where we find um, people making pilgrimage to shrines, we even find people taking things away, um, and we find the rabbis, it's very interesting that the, the rabbis are worried about this just as the Christian theologians are worried about it. So you get Jewish rabbis who say things that sound a little bit like what I quoted Thomas Aquinas as saying about relics. Um, the rabbis say, well, the Jews don't revere dead bodies. They actually say that's what Christians do. They put a dead body at the center of their religion, but we Jews, we don't do this. And so if Jews are going to tombs and taking things away, it's because the spirit of the dead is hovering around the tomb. And so the Jews are revering the spirit, sort of the spirit of the ancestors and not the stuff that's in the tomb. And we also find, it, it's interesting, there are some Jewish texts which make fun of Christian relic cults in quite interesting and, and amusing ways. But then we find weird kind of stories. I mean, Jewish women who say there's, there's Jesus's dress, which is somewhere, and it can cure certain kinds of childhood diseases. And so if a baby gets really sick, we're going to take him or her to, and it turns out this is probably Christ's robe at Trier, which had a Jewish community, and they're probably, I mean, after all, you know, if you've got a, a sick child, you're, you're going to try anything, and if the, the at-home cures don't work, you might very well go to the robe of Jesus. So clearly these kinds of things are not, are not central in Judaism, but you do get reverberations, and you get, you know, you get certain kinds of transformation. You get wells popping up and this kind of thing. I mean, you know, they're not supposed to hold these kinds of things, but, but, but it, it, it is there. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you.